We know that somewhere in the world, someone downloaded this podcast, but we don't know anything about you. The folks who support this show would love to know just a little bit about who is listening. If you have two minutes, it really does only take two minutes. Help us make this show an even better experience for you by telling us more about yourself. Just go to ListenerQ, L-I-S-T-E-N-E-R-Q.com forward slash pull up and take the short survey. You can also give us direct feedback on the show, which we would love to hear. And as a thank you, you'll be entered in a drawing for a $100 Amazon gift certificate. Two minutes. ListenerQ.com slash pull up. That's ListenerQ.com slash pull up. The series is over. Game one is pivotal. It's what changed everything. You've seen LeBron's reaction. You've seen the coach's reaction. You've seen how everybody looked. They were in disbelief. So the series is over. It's just a matter of do they get one game or do they get two. Kyrie Irving is the difference. You heard Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson's happy. He's ecstatic that he doesn't have to guard a guy like Kyrie Irving, who's capable of dropping 40, who has dropped 40 in elimination games, who did hit the shot to send Cleveland to the promised land. No one can guard LeBron, so it doesn't matter if Iggy's on him. He's still scoring 35 to 45 points. It doesn't matter, and he's going to shoot 50%. You could say the defense is making him work. They're sending double teams at him You know, after that 50-point performance. Iggy can't guard him. Clay can't guard him. The only person that can stop him is the guys in the stands. You know, If the 20,000 fans run on the court, that's the only way you're stopping LeBron. Welcome to the Tim Hardaway episode, a.k.a. the 10th episode of Pull Up. Jordan Schultz will be joining us momentarily, but first I want to give you guys an update on my trip to Turkey. Really enjoyed time with Big Bro. My guy Rick was with us, you know, holding it down, being able to explore Turkey, get some great food, sightseeing, checking out the games and the, the environment in Europe. It's unfortunate Big Bro wasn't able to pull it out. He was able to get one win and avoid the sweep. I told him, you know, I, I've gotten, I've received enough sweeps for the family. You know, make sure you get you a win. And he, he came away with a win, but... Lost a hard-fought battle to Tophis and uh, wasn't able to advance out the semifinals. So Big Bro will be home ASAP like Rocky. So I'm looking forward to seeing him, spending some time with him. Actually in Miami right now, training, spending some time with DBC, getting full body evaluations, going through movements, you know, from the top of my head all the way down to the bottom of my feet to where I'm understanding, you know, the spine, you know, the hips, the ankles, the the knees, why everything moves the way it does and how I can continue to keep everything in line going forward before I start the heavy training and the heavy the heavy load. So without further ado, welcome Jordan to the show, as always. What's up, Jordan? See, my man, everything's great. I just, uh, I'm just wondering if Cleveland can get a game. And uh, you were the one, I believe, that said Warriors in five. I think I had Warriors in six. You did. Can Cleveland get a game at home? I think they can definitely get at least one game at home. Obviously, the momentum is on the Warriors' side, but the Warriors did what they were supposed to do. They won two games at home. Obviously, game one was very, very controversial. And that game was the pivotal moment of the series because I believe if the Cavs win game one, they're able to get rid of the Warriors in six. But since they lost game one, game two was a bit of a Debbie Downer in terms of execution down the stretch, in terms of energy levels. LeBron had to play a lot of minutes, but four to five days of rest in between. I look for them to come out in game three with a, with a different sense of urgency, understanding that you don't want to go down 3-0 especially in the finals, especially against the Warriors. So role players always shoot better at home, and I expect, them to do, I expect them to do that. I just don't know what Cleveland can do differently. I mean, part of the – game one was so deflating because of what happened with JR and that they gave a haymaker. They had Golden State on the ropes. LeBron was magnificent. He breaks his playoff career high with 51. And it's been said, like, at some point you can't expect LeBron to just continually carry the load. And what – what I mean by that is he's asked to do so much on both ends of the floor. 
And when guys aren't making shots around him, it's going to make it that much harder. And I, I also think defensively, this is where this is where it matters, the regular season. Because Golden State has their identity. They're an elite defensive team because of how they switch. Cleveland doesn't have that identity. 27th in defense, 28th in blocks. They just they don't have it. They're trying to kind of learn it on the fly. And what's interesting to me, the adjustment that the Warriors made in Game 2 was they went kind of against what they normally do, which is set a ton of ball screens now with Steph. They, they set 40 ball screens for Curry in Game 2. That was the fourth highest clip since Durant joined. And that, to me, was interesting because they made Cleveland switch, and the Cavs just aren't very good at it, especially when you compare them to what the Warriors can do on that side. Right. For the Warriors to be a team who shares the ball extremely well, they move the ball, play out a pinch post, they realize they're they're – their bread is buttered by finding mismatches, finding ways to exploit uh, certain defensive matchups, whether that be getting Curry against Love or getting Curry against, you know, more of a slow-footed defender who's going to be reacting a little bit slower. But, you know, once they're able to get, you know, isolation situations, get certain switches, Curry, Clay, KD, they're threats off the ball as well to where you don't have a guard locked in chasing them, so they're able to kind of free themselves up, move around off the ball, pass it, get it back, and impact the game and I think we've seen that with Steph uh, last game you know he started off six for 18 finishes the game in the MVP conversation for the finals all all in one quarter he was magnificent I just you know what's interesting for me too is that we have given not necessarily us but although I have a little bit I have criticized KD not for leaving necessarily OKC but sometimes I feel like he's not comfortable being the guy and he doesn't always embrace that role because it is Steph's team, it feels like. And that's and you saw it in Game 2. He's a two-time MVP. And when KD doesn't have to guard LeBron, this is the luxury of all these, all this depth and switchability. When he doesn't have to guard LeBron, and then when he can let the game come to him, then he goes 10 of 14 as 26, and he's so efficient. And now that Iguodala is going to come back, that to me is, is the real difference. Because now with him on the floor guarding LeBron, that's another defender thrown at LeBron. And last year, comparatively from KD... To Iggy, it was a 14-point differential in, in efficiency, uh, much less for LeBron when he was guarded by, by uh, Iguodala. So that, that will be another wrinkle that Steve Kerr can throw at, at Cleveland. I think that'll be a small factor, but you're forgetting the, the one thing. No one can guard LeBron, so it doesn't matter if Iggy's on him. He's still scoring 35 to 45 points. It doesn't matter, and he's going to shoot 50%. But it's how much he has three. to work to get it. Man, he ain't working that hard, honestly. <laughs> I mean, it looks really easy. Um, you could say the defense is making him work. They're sending double teams at him, you know, after that 50-point performance. Iggy can't guard him. Clay can't guard him. The only person that can stop him is the guys in the stands. You know, if the 20,000 fans run on the, on the court, that's the only way you're stopping LeBron. So I think Iggy helps them defensively, giving him another body. But KD can't guard They can't guard him because of his strength, his ability to pass. And obviously, you know, with him making jump shots, he's, he's virtually unstoppable. So I think it'll help them. But KD's going to be more efficient because – of the shots he's getting, you know, those elbow jumpers, you know, being able to post up, take advantage of switches when you got George Hill on you, when you got Jordan Clarkson on you. And I think that's the ultimate, ultimately the difference because, you know, he guarded Braun essentially 15% of game one and two. And there was no real difference besides the fact that he took 14 shots and started the game five for five. Yeah, I wonder how much Cleveland misses a guy like Richard Jefferson. Um, you know, we talk a lot about Kyrie and that they lost in five last year with Kyrie. But can't you imagine how much, how, how, how good defensively or how much better they'd be if they had Jefferson? Did he make that much of a difference or no? 
Kyrie Irving is the difference. Jefferson was a good player. You know, he was a, a piece, you know, that did a lot of things. He threed indeed and made some big plays, but you heard Clay Thompson. Clay Thompson's happy. He's ecstatic that he doesn't have to guard a guy like Kyrie Irving, who's capable of dropping 40, who has dropped 40 in elimination games, who did hit the shot to send to send Cleveland to the promised land. Don't forget the step back. The step back, they got the switch on Steph Curry, and, and he manipulated that that game and that defense. George Hill's a, a better defender than Kyrie, but you can't hold a candle to him from an offensive standpoint because Kyrie's ultimately, you know, arguably the best dribble drive penetrator shot creator the, the game's ever seen. I think Cleveland's best lineup from a front court perspective is Love and, and Tristan at the same time. The issue is on the other side of the floor, Thompson – Thompson shrinks your court because you don't have to worry about him as a shooter. and But defensively, they need him, and rebounding, they need him, especially offensive rebounding. But I just don't know if Cleveland – Cleveland, to me, did not and hasn't shortened the game enough. If they, if they can minimize Golden State's possessions, then that would be – I think that would behoove them. But again, it, it what – how much does all this matter? Because at the end of the day, Golden State is superior and they're the better team. Jordan, the series is over. The game one is pivotal. It's what changed everything. You've seen LeBron's reaction. You've seen the coach's reaction. You've seen how everybody looked. They were astonished. They were in disbelief. So the series is over. It's just a matter of do they get one game or do they get two. That's the biggest thing. And then the other question is where does LeBron go? Jared Dudley seems to think Houston. We had a little exchange on Twitter I don't know if, if Houston will have the money. They'll have to go over dollar for dollar and pay the tax because, as we've seen today, Chris Paul wants the max and is not taking anything less than the max, which is five years, $205 million, which would be getting him $46, $47 million at age 37, which is amazing. And shout out to Chris Paul for not taking less than the max. Get your money, bro. Do what you got to do. Got a family to feed. You sacrificed a lot for the league. And um, he's, 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 putting, he's putting in place a very, very nice plan for the rest of the league. I like it. If the Rockets get LeBron, they instantly become the favorite to win it all, right? If the worst team in the world gets LeBron, they instantly become in the conversation. (laughs) Okay, so if the Blazers (laughs) got LeBron, you guys would be the overwhelming favorite. Duh. If anybody gets LeBron that's in the playoff contentions, they have a chance to win it all. I guess what I'm trying to say is, is, is how much more vulnerable would Golden State be? if he goes to an already established playoff team. They were already vulnerable. They almost lost to the Rockets. That's true. Without LeBron. So, and and they had Mbamute was hurt and didn't play. So, I mean, think about it. There are A lot of teams are getting better. It's just a matter of executing, staying healthy at the right times, and being able to win on the road. Because in order for you to win a series, unless you have home court advantage, you have to be able to beat good teams on the road. So, it'll be interesting to see. Going forward, all I would say is is Houston, specifically Daryl Morey, would have to be incredibly creative with his cap. They have some contracts they they've tried to move, whether it's especially the Ryan Anderson contract. But I don't I don't know if they can make that happen. It would be extremely entertaining to see those three together. Yeah, only time will tell. Okay, we've got more pull up for you in a second. But first, I want to talk to you about away travel. I obviously travel a lot, year-round, so luggage is something I'm dealing with constantly. I need something durable that's going to make it through the NBA season. Trips to see Big Bro in Turkey, vacations, all of that. Thankfully, away travel exists and has changed the luggage game in a big way. They offer high-quality materials at a low price by cutting out the middleman and selling directly to you. There are four sizes, the carry-on, the bigger carry-on, the medium, and the large, and all pieces are made with premium German polycarbonate. 
They have four 360-degree spinner wheels and a removable, washable laundry bag. Also, the interior features a patent-pending compression system in the coolest part away travel luggage is able to charge your phone. That'll come in handy when I need to text Jordan about the show. And I'm at 3% battery on the airport security line. Away travel luggage is compliant with all major U.S. airlines and has a lifetime warranty. Plus, if you get your bag and decide it's not for you, you can send it back for a full refund. Now, the best part. I've got a special offer for pull-up listeners who want to hit the road this summer. For $20 off a suitcase, visit awaytravel.com backslash pull-up or use the promo code pull-up at checkout. Again, visit awaytravel.com backslash pull-up or use the promo code pull-up at checkout for $20 off a suitcase. Now, back to the show. I think we have a special guest calling in. So, without further ado, I want to welcome Brian Copeland, one of the best brilliant minds out there, you know, creator of Billions, co-writer of Oceans 13, rounders, producer for The Illusionist and The Lucky Ones. The list goes on and on. Uh, he also did an ESPN 30 for 30 series as well. I think he won an award for that. So, you know, without further ado, I want to welcome on Brian to the show. Pull up. I appreciate you coming on. So happy to be here. Really and truly thrilled to talk to you. And uh, like I was saying to you a second ago, my my son, who just graduated college, said, Dad, you're about to talk to the smartest guy in the NBA, so I'm happy about it. No, that's an awesome compliment, especially coming from your son. I've done some research on you, as you as you know. Uh, you went to Tufts University, and then you went to Fordham University for law school. Your father was a producer and media executive, so just kind of walk me through your childhood and how you you know, eventually ended up, you know, being involved in the production side of things. I know you started off, you know, in marketing firms and things of that nature, but let's kind of go through that process and then get into billions. And then obviously I'm a big fan of meditation as well. So we can also discuss that going forward. Sure. Well, a, a couple of things. My, yeah, my, I grew up, uh, my father was uh, a record producer. He made records with groups like the Love and Spoonful and Dolly Parton and Barbara Streisand. So, I grew up, um, he didn't make TV or movies, but I grew up in recording studios. Uh, a lot of my childhood was spent. Um, we lived out on Long Island. I was uh, a basketball-obsessed person. Like uh, I watched every single Knicks game that was on, on TV, on a small black-and-white TV that was in our basement. Uh, we, my first memory, going with my dad to see uh, the Knicks play the Baltimore Bullets when Earl the Pearl was on Baltimore. So... I was basketball obsessed. I played my, my whole life, and those were the things. I loved um, basketball, and I loved music and movies and books. I was a big reader. And um, I lived uh, a pretty typical, like, normal existence other than this time that I would spend with my father uh, watching him, like, get a performance out of a, a lead singer, which ended up being incredibly valuable to me because talking to a, a singer at 3 in the morning, trying to help them get a performance is really similar uh, to talking to an actor and trying to help them be present and calm enough to give a great performance and understanding that um, you have to be really present and in the moment and you have to not be in a place of fear or trying to just get a result, but in fact have to really connect in order to make that person feel safe. I think similar to the way the best coaches uh, are in, in sports in a, in a way, which is they don't want the player to know they are worried. Uh, they want the player to feel supported and safe. So um, that's how I grew up. And then I followed my father into music. When I was in college, uh, I was an activist on campus. And at the time, 
there was a, a, the school's endowments were invested in companies doing business in South Africa, and this is during apartheid. And uh, I helped lead the, the movement on my campus to end that and end, end the investments. It was called, called a, the, the divestment movement. And in doing that, um, I stumbled across Tracy Chapman, who was a singer-songwriter uh, in the area. She was two years ahead of me at school, and I got Tracy to play at an event supporting divestment. But then I began working with her. I produced her demos and helped her get her first record deal and helped make the album that had Fast Car on it and, and sold like 12 million albums or 13 million albums around the world. And so that launched me into a career in, in music. But uh, it turned out that I didn't find it fulfilling because I, I, somewhere inside me was a blocked writer trying to get out. You know, I, I realized that all I wanted to do was find a way to communicate. I'd worked with artists, but I really wanted to be the artist. And um, uh, around when I was 29, our, our first child was born. And uh, I realized I wouldn't be the kind of parent uh, who would tell his kid, I don't want to be a liar, and I want to be the kind of parent who would tell his kids to chase a dream when I wasn't chasing my own. And I was really, even though I had a good job, uh, I was miserable. And uh, I just knew that I would become bitter if I didn't find a way to do this thing. I would become a bitter person. And uh, when you're blocked, when, when a dream dies, like any other kind of death, I think it becomes toxic. And that toxicity can leak onto those that you care the most about. So that's when my best friend, David Levine, and I committed to each other that we would meet early every morning and write for two hours. And right around that time, I stumbled into a poker club uh, and uh, called him at two or three in the morning. And I said, hey, man, I just lost 750 bucks, but I think I know what our movie should be about. And then Dave was like, who are the characters? And I said, well, I'm not, I'm not sure. We started meeting every morning and together we wrote rounders. And that really is what launched us together into the movie and TV business. And Dave is my partner on, on everything that uh, all the things you rattled off of, that I've done. It's all been with Dave. We're, we do, do it all together. Wow. That's a, that's an awesome story. And just to kind of comment on that South Africa, I went to South Africa last year for the uh, global, the global games, the NBA participates in, and I was able to check out the uh, Nelson Mandela apartheid museum. And it was an amazing, amazing experience. So um, I appreciate you, you know, adding that, that tidbit in there. Amazing what that guy did, right? That he right. like to be in that jail for that long and never give in to despair. Like, don't you think all of us give in to despair like 10 times a day? Just yeah. living our regular lives. Exactly. And that guy, for what, 26 years? And never gave in to feeling like it was helpless. I, you know, there's almost nothing more inspiring than that, than, than that story. I've never been, so I've never gotten to see it. Did you get chills when you were walking through there? I got chills. I had mixed emotions of like sadness, rage, a little bit of everything just because of the, the stories they were telling about how they hid his letters. They wouldn't allow his wife and his kids to come see him. There's just oh. so much that went on to that. So for him to be able to stand strong without having support, there's no support. And they weren't allowing him to even see his family. No, I mean, I, I mean, when my food, I mean, you know, when my food delivery guy is 15 minutes late, I think I'm going to starve to death. So right. that's my level of impatience. Imagine being, imagine being them and him and having to live through it. It's yeah, that's, that's amazing. And then there's another thing I want to talk about. You talked about you know, going after your passions. You know, obviously, you know, you went after your passion. You were, you were in a good place. You know, making good money, but you aren't happy. My brother and I had a similar story to where we played baseball, basketball, and football. Baseball was our best sports by far, but we didn't love it. So we felt like you know choosing a sport we weren't as good in. You know, being able to dedicate yourself to it, actually being able to live with failing at something that you love doing, was kind of the ultimate decision for us. So I just wanted to give you that and then 
talk about being centered. Talk about being able to block out distractions. I think that's something that is is applicable to all walks of life, whether that be sports, whether that be musicians, whether that be directors, whether that be people working uh, nine to five at a desk selling insurance. I think it's important that you know you're able to find that balance of meditation, find that balance of relaxation, being able to get the heart rate lower, and being present in the moment. So I want to talk to you a little bit about trans. Transcendental uh, med- meditation, which is something you practice. Uh, I've read about you said 15 to 20 minutes about twice a day. Are you still practicing it? And how impactful has that been in your life? Because I understand there's a movement going on right now and people are being, becoming more aware as a whole and as society understanding that mental health is, is very, very crucial and it affects all our day to day lives. I love talking about this. Yes. I still meditate every day. And because we all battle there's so much coming at us, right? Not just information, but um, all the time there are various ways that you're you're getting kind of triggered, right? You check something online and your blood pressure goes up or um, someone disappoints you at work or you're scared of what your boss is going to say. And I found that a couple of tools really worked for me, meditation being paramount, uh, to just take the 20 minutes twice a day and recenter. Just kind of dials down the volume on the anxiety or the tension. It doesn't make it all fucking disappear, but it does just turn the volume down enough that you can deal and process the rest of your day. And you think, I find that when, when, when I get anxious or when I get concerned or I get angry, part of like the collateral damage of that stuff is that it affects your ability to think clearly about other stuff because your mind keeps going to this bad thing, right? And you uh, it interrupts your flow, your state of flow. We're all trying to chase. Um, I mean, athletes are. We're all trying to t- chase a state of flow in what we do. When I'm writing and it's going amazingly well, I have that feeling of being both present, really present, but also kind of floating in the air. And like almost in the ether, just barely tethered to the earth, which is like I've heard athletes describe it similarly when they're in the zone, when they feel like they can't miss or like they just see the floor incredibly light. You must experience something like that sometimes, right, where you're kind of not even conscious of how you're doing what you're doing. Exactly. I think that that happens a lot for athletes. And you chase those. We all want those moments to happen more, right? I could write for six or seven days and it doesn't quite feel like that. Then suddenly it feels like that for three days and then it goes, but so you try to put things in place that'll help you get there more easily, more quickly, more in a way that you can repeat and meditating really helps me do that as the, and, and morning pages do. That's the other piece is that every day I do free writing, like three longhand pages and those three longhand pages uh, where I don't censor myself and I just go really helps get my subconscious going and gets all the junk out of my head and lets me do what I need to do because I have to try to perform on a really high level all the time be- because I have all these actors. And when I say I, I mean Dave and me, the two of us, but we have all these actors and all these crew people, everyone depending on us to deliver something that they can shoot and that they, they'll be happy about and that our audience will dig. And so the more I can get out of worrying about that and the more I can just be in the state of flow of creating it, the better. And it's really hard uh, because we're all human beings. So it's very hard not to get uh, knocked off course. And those things just really help me. What do you do uh, to get yourself 
the other thing I, I, for me, cardio, if I do cardio, that helps too. But what do you do, man, to stay with that? The, like how long your season is and the highs and lows and everyone writing about you all the time. And how do you manage it? I'm, I always want to know this about guys who perform at the level you do. So can you tell me a little bit? No, that's a great question. I think it's, it's basically what you said. You like to write in the morning. I like to listen to music. So I usually typically start my day listening to music and I have playlists based on moods. You know, sometimes it's 90s hip hop and R&B. Sometimes it's just the cello and violin or Mozart where I don't want to hear any words. Yeah. I just want to hear, you know, different types of rhythms. And then sometimes it's old school, Marvin Gaye, Luther Vandross, stuff like that to where I just want to soothe the brain and just relax yeah. and kind of take myself back to my childhood. So that's one of the ways I kind of get through the chaos and I, I tell I tell my girl all the time I tell my family members all the time you know no matter how much success you have or how much money you have you still have problems and a lot of times they're magnified the, the pressures the stress <laughs> the anxiety that we go through like the day-to-day -day anxiety of a professional athlete is off the charts whether you're an all-star player or a bench player you're always worried about failure you're worried about underperformance you're worried about being replaced you're worried about injury you have a lot of things that affect your day-to-day -day, but you have to kind of zone in find your happy medium find your peace and I find that by reading and I'm definitely going to ask you about some book recommendations I meditate I use the headspace app i've been using it for about three years now to where in spurts i might i might do a two or three minute just to kind of you know recover from my day or just kind of wind down and get my heart rate down or i'm listening to you know a 10 or 15 minute you know meditation where it's guided he's kind of talking me through the breathing talking me through you know eyes open eyes closed yeah and i try to do that as as much as possible obviously some days it's longer than other days and sometimes i'm just stressed out to where i facetime my brother and vent to him but I think, you know, being able to find that escape, whether that be, I love food. So sometimes I stress eat and I have to find like healthy options, whether that's chips and guac or fruits <laughs> or things of that nature to where maybe it's going to happy hour. Maybe it's just getting me a nice glass of Pinot and just kind of winding down and, and finding that inner self to understanding that I have a job that I love and a job that I would do for free and I get paid top dollar to do it. So I'm blessed and I'm healthy and my family's healthy and I'm able to take care of a lot of people. So just trying not to sweat the small things has been, you know, big for me. And I've gotten a lot better. I got a lot more comfortable in my own skin to where I don't worry about failure. I don't worry about success. I ride the wave. I stay even kill. And I think, you know, the ego is the enemy and obstacle is the way. Some of those books I've read has just allowed me to kind of stay, you know, kind of like that, that pilot mode. Oh, Ryan's a friend of mine. Right, Holiday? He actually signed my book, uh, Ego is the Enemy. Yeah. I, I'm a huge fan of him. I have to get uh, him on the podcast. Great. Oh, you should. He, he's been on my podcast, and he's a great guy. I've known him for a long time. Ryan's a great guy, and he walks in, like he talks. I love hearing you say that, this stuff, by the way. I think it's really important that somebody like you, who is such a high achiever, talks about things like the anxiety and the pressure in a really straightforward way, because I think people look at folks like you, and to a lesser extent, folks who do what I do, as though having um, some success in the world makes makes uh, us uh, not have issues or not be like them or that they you know and and the more that it's clear to people that they shouldn't feel bad about the fact that they feel bad that everybody feels bad I think is super helpful and that there are these tools like I do everything you just said man like reading and listening to music Dave and I pick all the music for our show and people always write about the music for the show and that's because we're obsessed music fans and I listen, I take long walks every morning uh, on the way to work. And I listen to music in the morning so that I get my head in this creative space. And at night, I'll listen to podcasts when I walk on the way home. Because I live in Manhattan, so you can walk around a lot. That stuff, you know, controlling your environment to the extent that you can is huge to help stay 
in a place of like um, moving forward in positivity and not getting yanked or triggered. Right. Yeah, I think you, you hit it right on the head, right on the head. Okay, before we keep it moving, I want to quickly talk about my friends at LinkedIn. A business like a basketball team is only as strong as its people, and every hire matters. So don't settle for posting and hoping the right person will find your role and apply. Use LinkedIn. I mean, you could use a simple job board when looking to hire, but why not utilize the world's largest professional network instead? It's a great way to find talent. 70% of the U.S. workforce is already on LinkedIn. And because LinkedIn considers skills, experiences, location, and more to match and promote your job to potential candidates, businesses rate LinkedIn jobs 40% higher than job boards at delivering quality candidates. Hundreds of thousands of businesses have posted to LinkedIn jobs over the past year, and 22 million professionals view and apply to jobs on LinkedIn every week in every industry. So give it a shot. I'll help you get started. Go to LinkedIn.com slash pull up and get a $50 credit toward your first job post. That's linkedin.com slash pull up for your $50 credit today. Terms and conditions may apply. Uh, Brian, for me, I'm just wondering, you've talked, there was a great piece in the Wall Street Journal and it's an interview that you did and you talked about how you need to find in a day, an hour just to do what you need to do. Is that for you, is that generally writing and how do you balance work with everything else, clearing your mind and being present with family? Well, I get a lot of energy from my family. So one of the things is if you want to be, and I know that you live this, CJ, too. uh, If you want to be successful at something highly competitive and it demands a tremendous amount of focus, you have to learn how to say no to a lot of stuff. And it's really hard to say no to a lot of stuff. Yeah, you ain't lying. (laughs) But you just have to say no to the dinner invitation, no to the party, no to socializing, no to seeing extended family. You have to say no so much that you risk being thought of as an asshole. Or, uh, but it's the only way to protect that other stuff, right? Because you have to find a way. And we all, by the way, you have to say no to stuff you want to do. You have to say no to going, if it's me, so I, you have to say no to going to a basketball game because you know that what you need to do is get and you know, get to bed early enough that you can buy that time for yourself at five in the morning or six in the morning. Like you have to decide what's important. At a certain point, I realized what was important to me was being able to do this work that I do. So then I had to figure, well, how? Luckily, I have a wife who I married the right person at a young age. That's luck. We found each other. That was a lucky thing, but it was like a life-saving thing because she has constantly supported what I wanted to do. We love our kids. They're now 18 and 22. We spent a lot of time with them, and we just found a way to say no to all the extraneous stuff. Most of the time, nobody's fucking perfect. So a lot of the time, I said yes when I shouldn't have. But most of the time, I say yes to the extraneous stuff, and I protect the part of myself and the time to do the work. So when we're shooting the show, because Dave and I are the showrunners, which means we're in charge of making sure the show is shot right, cast right, edited right, that the music's right. You know, we produce the whole thing and write it. We have a team of writers who work with us. It's up to us to rewrite all the scripts that we don't write ourselves and get the show right. So I'm working 16 hours a day, sometimes more. But still, that means I'll come home, I'll spend some time with my family, I'll go to sleep early, uh, I'll drink a Negroni, that's my version of the nice Pinot, and then I'll have one drink, though, at the most, basically one drink, if I, and not even every night, maybe three nights a week, and then I'll find a way to get up, so I'm up at five. 5:30, uh, 
And you can see that by checking my Twitter feed, because sadly, I'm a little addicted to Twitter, because nobody's perfect. So I'll tweet early in the morning, but that's after I do my stuff. I meditate, I do my morning pages, then I'll check social media, and then I'll take a, a walk to work. But you do have to structure your day. I mean, one thing you guys have that athletes have, right, is that partially your day, during the season, your day is pretty structured for you, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I mean, you hit that right on the head. The structure, the the uh, the rhythm in your day. I understand that you have a routine is crucial. You know, some guys are thrown off by changes in their routine. Maybe that be the chef. Chef gets sick. Chef gets in a car accident, or you oversleep. You're not able right. to get the proper stretch before you go shoot your pregame. So I think routine is is everything. And for you to be as consistent and as sharp as you are, you know, understanding that. Saying no is, is one of the things you learn early on. You go from not having a lot of money to having a lot of money, so you're invited to more things. You're, you're suddenly more popular. You're more attractive if you're single, and if you're not single, you're still more attractive. So there's a lot of things that, that change in your life to where you have to find your balance. And I think the biggest thing that I've struggled with is saying no to family. You know, having to say, no, uh, I can't make it to the family reunion this year. I have, a, I have another obligation. I can't I can't go to little, little cousin's birthday this year because I have an obligation. So finding that balance is hard. And when you want to be successful, sometimes it's hard to be present all the time. So being able to be present in the moment, I've been trying to work on it, just logging out of my Instagram, logging out of my Twitter That's because <laughs> I'm That's addicted. I'm addicted. And the first step is being able to admit it. Being present in the moment is, and the two things, right? We all struggle with, all both of you guys, I know, like, being able to be really present and then becoming comfortable in your skin, really comfortable with who you are, not trying to put on any airs, not trying to put on, hey, um, this is the way in which I'm a badass or just like, nope, this is who I am. And if you can somehow get to this is who I am, and then when you're engaged with somebody, really be there. Like, like even that little cousin thing. You know, the truth of the matter is if your little cousin got a five-minute phone call with you or Skype where you were right there and he was really talking to you, that's way – to that kid, that's way more important than you showing up at the party long-term. And you just got to tell yourself that and figure out how to commit to it. It's hard because you get, you get pulled. You know, I'm 52. I've learned this over a long haul. You're, what, 26 years old? It's uh, a lot harder to figure that stuff out so close to the beginning, I think. Right. And I appreciate the advice. I'm definitely going to reach out to you and get your contact information and definitely exchange emails and, you know, stay in contact with you just because I think you're, you're a great, you're a great guy. You're doing things the right way. And I'm, I'm obsessed with the show. So before we let you go, we have to talk about billions briefly. Yes. And definitely get my information. I'm, I'm happy to, t I'd love to be connected. That's great. I can lord that over my son too. So okay. that's real fun. Yeah, okay, for so, sure. Um, we can talk about billions. Let's do it. Yeah. Let's talk about billions for a second. Uh, the last episode was amazing. I think I think what you guys are doing, how you're setting everything up and how you spin each episode, whether that be, you know, making making some 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 problems in the household of, of Bobby Axelrod, you know, you, set, you kind of separated them, but then you kind of put them back together to where there's obviously feelings and tension there. And then you go to the Rhodes household where there's a lot of different issues going on. They have that extra component to where, you know, we all have our urges and desires and they have that. And then it's exposed, you know, to his parents. And then you have the situation with Taylor, who's potentially about to have her own company and how she's manipulating her situation in terms of, you know, learning from Bobby taking stuff away from Bobby and then kind of adding on to that. So my question for you is, how do you go about evolving, you know, each episode? And then how do you steer away from showing too much in one episode so that the, the viewers and watchers are continuing to want more and want to view it more and, you know, kind of trying to figure out what's going to happen next? Yes. 
Uh, well, I'll answer all that, but first, because you have such a big platform, I just want to say that the pronouns for the character and the actor are they, them, and theirs, not she. And you know, Taylor is gender non-binary, and it's hard for all of us to get used to using that, but we have such a big platform on, on the show. I just want to put that out there um, as something I think is I- important for people to know as they, as they watch. And then to, to, to answer it, um, I mean, part of the way I can answer that is to say, like, uh, I played two hours a day of ball pretty much every day of my life until I was like 40 and I watch you play and I don't understand how you could make the no look pass and just see the cutter. And you're like, well, I've put in all the more hours and I'm talented at it. And whatever. so part of the way we do that is we've spent years of our lives thinking about when to withhold information and when to give information. Right. So a lot of storytelling in life is, how much do I need to tell? What's the like minimum amount I need to ke- tell you to keep you listening? And how do I make you laugh along the way so that it's really fun while you're listening? And then can I throw in a little worry for you? And that is, a lot of that is the practice of the craft, right? First, it starts with loving it. So I love movies and TV shows. I'm obsessed with them. I know them by heart. I've spent so much of my life thinking about it. So I've internalized those lessons. And then um, I love these characters and I love the, the, the journey they're going through. Like people will ask us all the time, are you team actor? Are you team Chuck? And it's like, I'm team all of them. I understand what makes all of them tick and what makes all of them special and what the problems that they have are. And then our job is to like use uh, the visuals and the words that they say and the music to keep you engaged without spoiling it for you by giving you too much information. And it's a really tough balancing act. We have great editors that we work with and we're constantly tweaking it. So we'll finish it. Like before you see an episode, David and I have watched that episode a hundred times and changed it every time. We're going to we take out a minute here and put a different minute in there and we flip the order of two scenes And so we're constantly kind of testing it against the ideal version of it that's in our heads. And, um, I mean, that's, that's, that's the answer. That is awesome. Yeah. I got to ask you, I got to ask you, Brian, about rounders. It's one of my all time favorite movies. Oh, thank you. Oh, it's just fantastic. It's fan. And and you also are in it, right? You have that little cameo. Uh, yeah, yes, exactly. Right. For one second. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Anyways, I love the, I love the movie. And I know that you had a hard time selling the script. So my question is a two-part. When when you made the movie, it didn't have the immediate commercial appeal. So at what point did you realize you had a cult classic in, in a movie that was going to last way beyond just when it came out in theaters? And two, um, how hard was it to get that script sold? So I write, I wrote a story about the how hard it was. Um, if people, I don't. My blog is not really active, but I have one at Um where I wrote about, like in a longer way than I could say it now, the travails of trying to sell it. Yeah, man, the movie bombed in the movie theater. It bombed in the movie theater. Nobody went to see it. But about a year later, we realized that guys all over the place were memorizing it. They would come up to me and they would, I'd go somewhere where guys were playing poker and they knew every word. And it was mostly guys at first, not women. And then I saw that like at any college I ever went to, they all knew all the words. And then people online started talking about it. So about a year later, and then it became crazy. You know, then I realized like, 
most every guy goes through college. Somebody at some point shows in the movie, he goes through a period of time where he watches it a whole bunch of times, and then he and his friends play poker and they quote it. And that's been super rewarding. Like, I'm a poker junkie. I love poker. I don't gamble in any other thing, but I love poker. And it's been great because, like, when I walk into a poker casino, um, all the top poker players in the world will sit down with me, teach me something about poker, let me watch them play and see their cards. So it's been an incredible entree into a world that I truly love. So it, it's been awesome. I love hearing that, that, that you dig it, man. Well, you also, what, what's so cool about the film, and I appreciate your, your candor, but you also helped create a movement, that poker movement, which was to have whole cards shown to then that created the moneymaker effect that had this unbelievable um, effect on America in terms of not just men, but eventually women to your point. And I think that's so cool when you can create not a revolution, but you literally transformed culture. You created not just a niche, but an opportunity for everybody to see poker in a different light because of showing whole cards and making it cool and having the, the, the great quotes and, like that's that's just the best part to me and and that's i can imagine that's incredibly rewarding well thank you yeah i love that it started yeah sometimes people will ask me like how does it feel that the whole poker move started afterwards and it is i'm like well we helped start that that question is we helped start the poker boom our movie and then yes then the whole card cam um on the world poker tour and then do you guys play on the airplane cj do you guys play on the airplane ever a lot of guys play cards uh, on the airplane but i some of them play poker what is it three there's there's like three card, it's like Texas Hold'em. There's a bunch of different games, but yeah, come on, CJ, I, get I'm, with it. Honestly, I'm not very good, and there's a lot of money being thrown around, so I prefer to just play blackjack and games that I know how to play. Yeah, but you would be great at poker if you spent like. Have you ever watched it on TV, the World Poker Tour? I have. I have watched it. You would be really good at poker. Like you would kill everybody at poker because I agree. You, the way you see, you would, you would, if you spent a very limited amount of time thinking about it you'd be very good at it and you'd be winning that airplane money i don't know how to play but if, if the right person teaches me the game I, I would get involved in it for sure yes you gotta learn someone's got to teach you the game uh, i'm gonna teach you cj <laughs> i'm gonna teach you bro no, i appreciate that man and yeah, you gotta teach him teach him and then give him like a book on it and then that's it it'll be off and running and then you'll be you will dominate and it's an important game to know how to play it is. It's a social game. All these NBA dudes, guys like Paul Pierce, think they can play Russell Westbrook. CJ, I actually think you could play. I think you'd be really good at it, to Brian's point. I'm definitely going to add that in there. And before we let you go, Brian, I have to ask for that book recommendation, and then I'm going to get your contact information offline. And I have to shout out Kelly Coin, a.k.a. Dollar Bill, who you know is a big Portland Trailblazers fan. And I've been pitching, I've been pitching ways to get on the show to him for four years, trying to figure out ways to either come watch the show or sneak my and way in. no bigger <laughs> fan of you guys than Kelly, man. Kelly is the big – he just – man, does he love Portland. Yeah, he's, he's a huge, huge fan. He really is just a gigantic fan. Um a book recommendation. What do you like to read? So let me find my right now. I'm reading. I brought the Daily Stoic with me uh, from Ryan Holiday. 366 Meditations on Wisdom, Perseverance, and the Art of Living. I actually have that with me right now in Miami. And I also brought Bob Goff's book, 
Everybody Always, which is, you know, essentially the second book he wrote. But the second book he wrote before it was finished, it was stolen. He, he kind of writes about that in the initial excerpt. So this is considered his third book. But I have that yeah. with me right now in Miami as I'm training. So those are two books I'm reading right now. I'm a What's big, it called? Everybody? Yeah, it's called Everybody Always. Basically, he talks that about... That's what you're reading right now? Yes. Everybody Always, that's what you're reading right now? Yes, that's what I'm reading right now. I, I know exactly what to give you. Um, there's a book by a, a, a Japanese writer called Haruki Murakami. And he wrote a book called What I Talk About When I Talk About Running. And it, it's, it's ostensibly a book about running, but it's not really. It's a book about living a disciplined, focused life of pursuit. He's probably the greatest novelist in the world. He writes fiction books, and he's one of the most popular writers in the world. Like He sells millions and millions of copies, even though he's Japanese and he's writing, he writes in Japanese and it gets translated. This book, though, is a short book about discipline, focus, and commitment. Murakami owned a jazz bar, and he was a cigarette-smoking jazz bar guy, and he went to a baseball game in Tokyo. And while at the baseball game, he had this idea that he could become a writer. And he went home and sold the bar and started writing. And, I mean, slightly different, pretty much started writing and then sold the bar and changed his whole life uh, around and started like eating better and then running. And he became an ultra marathoner and then he became a triathlete and all the time writing. And it's just an incredibly inspiring. It will inspire you. You'll give it out to 50 people. And then for fiction, the book city of thieves by David Benioff, David Benioff's creator of game of Thrones. You know, he's a showrunner of game of Thrones with his partner, D.B. Weiss. But he wrote a fiction book called City of Thieves that is just an incredible, takes you away from your reality. It's nothing like Game of Thrones. It's about two brothers in Russia um, during the war. But it's just a great fiction book. But for you, I'd say the first thing, both of you guys should read this book, What I Talk About When I Talk About Running by Haruki Murakami. Okay, awesome. I appreciate that, man. Thanks again for being so candid. We talked about meditation. We discussed the importance of saying no, the importance of time management and you know, what it's like to, you know, have the, have the normal day-to-day stretches everyone has and be vulnerable. So I appreciate that. I'm definitely gonna get your contact information. And also, um, I want to apologize to Taylor. You're going to come on my podcast. Oh, for sure. For sure. I'll definitely come on your podcast, man. I have no problem doing that. I'll talk to Ashley and we'll figure out, you know, what time and date works for you. You can have as much as much time as you need. I got to ask you all these questions you asked me, man. I got to I got to hear your answers in a long way. So I will block off as much time as you need. I literally work out a couple of times a day in Miami and just chill. So that's perfect. Awesome. Tell your son I said, what's up? You got two sons, right? Two kids? No, so I got a son and a daughter, Sam and Anna, and I will tell Sammy you said, what's up? That's great. Tell him I said hello, man. Shout out to them for being for being fans of me coming from a small school like Lehigh University. I appreciate it. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> and uh, yeah, get my contact info from any of the, all the people that have it. Just shoot me an email, and then we'll be in touch or text me. Okay, awesome. I appreciate you. Enjoy the rest of your day. All right, guys. Be well. Once again, I want to thank Brian Koppelman for coming on the Pull Up Pod and sharing some insights on billions, on his life, his upbringing, and some of the things he does in his day-to-day life to allow him to be as successful as possible and as balanced and healthy as possible. So, appreciate you coming on, man. You can follow the show at Pull Up Pod on Twitter. 
Facebook and Instagram. You can follow me at CJ McCollum on Twitter, at 3J McCollum on Instagram, and at CJM313 on Snapchat. And you can follow Jordan at... I'm at Schultz underscore report, S-C-H, on uh, Twitter and Instagram. Just Jordan Schultz on Facebook, C. Awesome. Awesome sauce. And I appreciate you guys listening in, and we'll be back in about a week. And also, don't forget to... Pull up! up.